You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36, and we're going to go through um, chapter 16, verse 15. Acts 15, 36 is where we will begin. I want to talk real quick as a way to introduce this about two different, two different ways that uh, we can be shown or taught things. Uh, there's prescriptive or there's descriptive, and they're very, very different. So let me, make, let me explain. I could sit here and talk to you guys, if you needed to know, about Revised Code of Washington 4817530.1e, which talks about, uh, which, which says that it is, it is a crime to deliberately misrepresent the terms and conditions of an insurance policy to someone. I could also talk to you about Revised Code of Washington 4817531h, which makes it illegal to engage in fraudulent or dishonest practices. So I could talk to you about that, and if you needed to know, maybe it would be helpful to you if I sat down and explained the elements of each offense. Or another way, that's, that's, that's prescriptive, I'm just, I'm explaining to you. Or I could do the descriptive route, and I can tell you a story about a woman who took $18,000 from, um, from a, a, an apartment complex developer and gave them, took the money, then gave them a certificate of insurance that said, you know, if an apartment unit catches on fire or whatever, then you have insurance and you're covered. And I, and she took their $18,000, uh, but the certificate of insurance is fake. She just stole the $18,000 and then gave them a fake piece of paper that told them that they had insurance for a 50 unit apartment complex. And if anything had happened to the apartment, if there, you know, if the sprinklers had gone off and there had been water damage or if there had been a fire, who knows what could happen in 50 different dwellings? Look what happened next door this morning. Who knows if anything had happened during that policy term and the, the, the complex owner had gone and said, filed a claim, the company would have said, I have no idea who you are. You don't have insurance with us because the insurance agent stole the $18,000 and just gave, them, gave her a fake certificate of insurance. So I could tell you about it in like an academic way. We can talk about the, the violation and all the elements, or I could just show you an example and you say, ah, fraud, I get it, I understand. Um, in the descriptive way, it's not that you're being taught it, you're shown it. You just see something and then you draw you know, conclusions. The book of Romans, it's a prescriptive. Paul is teaching. Like the whole thing is just one long thing where Paul is teaching something in a very step-by-step -step way. And, but the book of Acts, because it's not that kind of book, it's just a history. It's like a narrative. You look, you just look at what happens and then you can see conclusions from it. So it's a different type of learning and that's what's going on here. What God shows us this morning in Acts chapter 15 verses starting in verse 36 through Lydia's conversion in Acts chapter 16 verse 15, he shows us at least four different he challenges us in at least four different areas. Now, I don't know, I don't know obviously I don't know everything that goes on in each of your lives. So as I rattle off these four areas, some of them may may have nothing to challenge you with, but if the shoe does fit, then I think the Holy Spirit does have something for you. Uh, and you'll have to decide, you with the Holy Spirit's help, will have to decide if the shoe fits or not. The passage today shows us challenges in at least four different areas, and this is what they are. Number one, should we ever give in on things for the sake of the gospel? Like if you want to share the gospel with someone and there are barriers in the way, is it ever a good idea to just forget about those barriers or set them aside for the sake of being able to tell someone the gospel so they'll actually listen to you? 
Is that ever allowed? Number two, how does God communicate with us today? Like, how does he? Are there ways that the boat, this passage will show us that God communicates that's outside of a box that we might have put around ourselves or that we've been taught by very well-meaning good teachers to put around ourselves? Does, does the book of Acts show maybe a broader horizon that we don't embrace? And if so, what does that mean? Number three, why, if you go behind the curtain, if you look at salvation as a play, where out on the stage, you see what happens, but there's a whole bunch of stuff happening behind the curtain, right? There's stage hands moving stuff in and out, and they're doing all sorts of stuff is going on behind the curtain. If you, if you want to look behind the curtain into the inner workings of salvation, why do people accept or reject the gospel? Like, why? What is happening behind the scenes that results in what happens out here on the stage? Right? What is the, what, why does someone accept or reject the gospel beyond, well, they're a sinner, but you know, beyond that? You know, what, what is going on that results in someone accepting Christ? And the fourth thing, what should we think about the role of women in churches? Now, the, 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 the passage talks about all four of these things, all right? And it doesn't describe them. It just shows it. it does, there's not this, this book of teaching. It just shows us some stuff. It doesn't show us them in amazing detail, but it gives us, it gives us sort of um, hints as to where God's heart is in a way that might challenge none of you or it might challenge some of you. Some or all of these may make you raise your eyebrows a bit as we see what, God, what God's word shows us about those four questions. So you should ask yourself as we go through this, is what we do now what they did then? And if not, why not? Those are questions that every Christian should be asking as we go through this. So normally in seminary, they teach you, you know, pick a thing, right? Pick one thing and make that your big idea. Well, there are four things going on here, and I don't want to preach four sermons on this. So we're, we're putting them all together, and the, the gods of sermon preparation will, may smite me or they may not. So you'll have to, if, I am, if I'm struck down, then tell the next guy not to do that anymore and it'll all be fine. But those four questions, I want to see what you can see as we go through this passage and see what it shows us. We're going to go uh, in three steps. Number one, we're going to see the events leading to us meeting Timothy. Timothy's an important guy. Paul thought he was a promising uh, young pastor, so we're going to meet Timothy. Uh, number two, we're going to see God's detour. Paul and Silas and Timothy want to go um, a different way, but God directs them to go somewhere else. And then third, we're going to see Lydia, which is the real force of the chapter, I believe, of this passage. Lydia, the woman in purple. Um, and there it is on the screen, in purple. Coincidence? No. So uh, that's how we're going to go through this. So let's pray, and uh, we'll take a look at what God can show us about these four questions as we go through this passage. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, please prepare our hearts to hear and accept your word. Silence in us any voice except your own, so that as we hear your word, we'll want to obey your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We start off in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And this is what it says. Sometime later, so the, you know, the council in Jerusalem is over. Paul and Silas have gone back to Antioch, and um, they've distributed the letter that the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem wrote, and now time has passed. It's been several years, a few years, 
Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas said, let's go back and visit all the brothers and sisters in every city where we preach the Lord's word. Let's see how they're doing. There is no Zoom, there is no email. They have no idea what on earth is going on there. It's been a few years, they're like, let's go back. Let's see how these guys are doing. Because remember, they didn't have a lot of time to you know, instruct the people in Lystra and Derby and Iconium. They were run out of town at each spot. They made converts and were able to instruct them a little bit, but then they had to leave. So who knows what's happening to these people. Maybe they've exchanged letters, but you know, they want to visit them and talk to them in person. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. Paul insisted that they shouldn't take him along since he deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't continued with them in their work. Their argument became so intense they went their separate ways. So we're going to see Barnabas take Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and go off to Cyprus. And we're going to see Paul and Silas go up to, to modern-day Turkey. They split and they go their separate ways. They're very angry. Paul doesn't trust Mark because Mark left. Paul changes his mind later because Mark is mentioned in Colossians in a, in a positive way, and Mark wrote the gospel. So Paul's not an infallible guy. Paul didn't trust the guy. He's like, this guy is useless. This guy's not dependable. I don't want him. But Paul was wrong, and Mark turned out to be an okay guy. Barnabas took Paul and sailed to Cyprus. And if you are online, you're not going to be able to see my cool thing. But Jerusalem is here, right? Jerusalem's here. Forget, there's, there's the arrows talk about two missionary journeys. We're on the second one, so just ignore the arrows. Jerusalem's down here. Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are based, is up here. They're going to go off and revisit all the cities where they were. On the first journey, they went to Cyprus and had the confrontation with Elimus, the sorcerer guy. Then they took the ship up here and went all over these cities. Well, Paul and Barnabas are, are having a dispute, so they split up. Barnabas, if you look at your Bible, Barnabas goes, takes Mark, and he's going to go through Cyprus and visit all these places. Paul, he's going to take Silas, and he's going to say, fine, you go this way, I will go this way, and I will visit all these places. So they, they're dividing the labor. Paul chose Silas and left, entrusted by the brothers and sisters to the Lord's grace. He traveled through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul reached Derby, and then Lystra. So he is, he's up here now. That's where Paul is. Paul reached Derby and then Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy. He was the son of a believing Jewish woman and a Greek father. So this isn't Jerusalem. A Jewish woman has married a Gentile man. What a scandal. Scandal. The guys in Jerusalem would not have been happy. But they're not in Jerusalem, are they? They're way up here far away from this legalism that's down in Jerusalem. So in Lystra, Timothy's mom is a, is a believing Jewish woman. She marries a pagan. Yes, it happens, and it happened here, and there it is. The brothers and sisters in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. He's probably a, a convert from when he came through the first time, right? They came through Lystra and Derby. They're run out of town. They made converts. On the swing back, they meet Timothy, She's mom is now a Christian. Timothy is a Christian. They're probably converts from the first time when they were there a few years before. Paul wanted to take Timothy with him, so he circumcised him. This was because of the Jews who lived in those areas. What do you think about that? 
Paul spent the whole book of Galatians. Sometimes I forget how weird it is that Christians talk about circumcision so much. You know, if you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian, they'll probably think we're all really weird. But anyway, um, you know, Paul spends the whole book of Galatians talking about how, you know, all these things about the law, they don't matter anymore. You're, you, put, you put wrong weight on them, and they don't save you, and they're never meant to save you, but you think that they do, and none of that matters anymore. In the book of Romans, he says it doesn't matter where you're circumcised or not circumcised, or is your heart circumcised? Is your heart marked for God? That's what really matters. But here, why does he circumcise Timothy? Timothy is a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Paul circumcises Timothy so, to erase barriers so that when they do go into these areas and talk to Jewish communities again, who we all know love Paul a lot, there won't be an unnecessary roadblock in the way to stop evangelism from happening. Now that's really, really interesting. This was because of the Jews who lived in those areas, for they all knew Timothy's father was Greek. They all know that Timothy's father is not a Jewish person. So instead of going to a place and have people glaring at Timothy, if they're legalistic Jewish people, having them glare at Timothy and say, you are not even circumcised. I can't even listen to you. I don't want to talk to you. Paul's like, well, let's just take care of that. Since you are Jewish, mother's Jewish. Let's just take care of that. And um, then we won't have to worry about it anymore. Paul could have been inflexible and stiff and said, no, none of that matters. You're putting wrong weight on it, and I won't give in, and he doesn't need to be circumcised at all, and they just need to get over it. Paul could have done that, but he decided to be pragmatic, to be strategically pragmatic. He's asking himself, what minefields can I diffuse in advance so that the people I'm going to go talk to will actually listen to me? So a question for us today, and I'm not going to suggest any answers, but a question for us today is you think about the people you work with, you think about the people you live near, you think about the people who God has put you around who you have a chance to some, sometime maybe sort of have conversations with. What cultural things should you be willing to give in on that don't matter in and of themselves in order to make gospel conversations easier? I don't know that you could probably make a list of some good suggestions. I'm not going to give you a list. I'm just saying that this is something that you should think about as you think about the people in your life. The people in your life are not there by accident. God has put them there, and he's put you there. So what barriers? Now, you, Paul could have made this a deal, a big deal and said, nope, circumcision doesn't count for anything, so it ain't going to happen, and if they don't like it, well, they must not love God. He could have said that and gotten some scriptures together and done that. Could have been stiff, but he's flexible. Paul is flexible within some limits, and this is a limit that he's flexible in because the circumcision thing, it doesn't matter, really. It's meaningless. And when he tells them the gospel and they become believers, he'll help them understand why it's meaningless, but he wants to be able to tell them the gospel without that being a, um, a wall. So what cultural things should you be willing to give in on that don't really matter in and of themselves in order to make gospel conversations easier? 
So it's something to think about. The circumcision thing has nothing to do with the message he's going to say. It's a wall that he, it's a, it's a, it's a mind that he is diffusing so he can have the conversation. So that's something to think about. As Paul and his companions, which is now Paul and Silas and Timothy and probably some other folks who we don't know, as Paul and his companions traveled through the cities, they instructed Gentile believers to keep the regulations put into place by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and every day the numbers flourished. So as they're still traveling around, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, they're, they're going all over the place here and traveling around. And it's really interesting. It says, so the churches were strengthened, or your translation might have, therefore the churches were strengthened. And all, what's interesting is that's a, that's a consequence. Because they're telling these churches they don't need to worry about these legalistic things that these folks in Jerusalem had been trying to force upon them. Because they're telling everyone none of that stuff matters, now the churches are flourishing. A church is strongest when it doesn't put up roadblocks fake roadblocks that don't exist. You can only take the Lord's Supper if you're baptized. Well, that sounds nice. It doesn't say that anywhere in the scriptures at all. Um, worship isn't proper if you show emotion or raise your hands. And I share the anecdote from a, a doctoral professor who I took a worship class on who, who believes that very fervently. If you show any emotion, your worship is wrong and God will not accept it. Um, this the same, the same I've re had to read books for class where they talked about the Bible doesn't say anything about having any decorations in church, so there should be no decorations in church. Advent, wreath, Advent candles are sinful. You're like, okay. Must be a really fun person to be around on Sundays, you know? And it's like, it's, so all these things that we, we want to keep adding. We always want to keep adding. But as soon as Paul and Silas go and tell all these churches, hey, here's a copy of the letter, none of that stuff means anything. The church in Jerusalem, the apostles have confirmed it. That was all, those are all lies. None of that stuff matters. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's just Jesus. None of that other stuff you have to do. And as soon as they hear that now the churches are flourishing, when you remove fake roadblocks, churches are stronger. When you remove fake roadblocks, churches are strengthened in the faith. And that's really interesting. And all of this comes down to that question that I've mentioned a few times before. There are three components to a Christian life, and each of them are important, but which one is supposed to be in the driver's seat? Number, option number the three components are right beliefs. You need to believe the right thing about the gospel, about God. You can't believe God is something, someone he isn't. Uh, you need to act the right way. Like There should be fruit of your allegiance to God. And then there's heart. You should love God from your heart. A real, honest love from your heart. All three of those things, they're like this triangle that, that sum up the Christian life. All of them got to be there. But which one's most important? Right beliefs? Right actions? Or a right heart? Which one should drive the others? There's always a tendency to make it something other than the heart. The heart is supposed to drive. If you love God with everything you have, then you'll want to know more about him and believe the right things, and you'll want to do what he says and to act to live the right way because you love him. But it's all driven from the heart. When you flip that triangle or twist it a different way, then everything gets all messed up. When Christianity becomes about how you act, it's all about how you act. 
right? Yeah you, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to act the right way and do the right things. And it all becomes very, very twisted. The reason why these churches are now strengthened in the faith is because Paul and Silas told them, all of those fake roadblocks, throw them in the garbage because they're lies. They're lies. Whenever you remove fake roadblocks that Jesus and the Bible never put in place, churches grow stronger. Now we get to the detour. The detour. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of Pergia and Galatia because, and here it is, the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. When they approached the province of Mysiah, they tried to enter the province of Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. The Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. Passing by Mysiah, they went down to Troas instead. A vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul during the night. Macedonia is Greece. A vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul during the night. He stood urging Paul, so that's what he sees in his dream. The guy says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And immediately after he saw the vision, we, now this is the first time we appears. Luke is now here. Luke met him probably in Troas, because now instead of they did this, now we prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Three times, which are on the screen, we see God directing Paul. There are Christians who spend, who see, who spend a, a very a huge amount of time, and all they talk about is what the Holy Spirit does not do, because they're very afraid of people being drawn away from Scripture into following personal experiences and promptings. And when these teachers talk about the Holy Spirit, most of the time they just spend their time saying what the Holy Spirit doesn't do. And yet here we see in this passage three things. We see the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching in the province of Asia. We don't know how the Holy Spirit kept them. Maybe, the, maybe a prophet in one of the churches told them, don't go there. Maybe it was an inward prompting. I don't want you to go there. But there is communication. There is direct communication that Paul and Silas and Timothy can understand. Then second, we see the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go to the province of Bithynia, which is in northern Turkey. The Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. It just, it just wouldn't happen, which is also very strange. There's a direct communication. What does it mean that he won't let them? It doesn't say. Maybe there's a strong sense of, I can't do that. Maybe, maybe God ruined all of their plans, so they're like, okay, I guess that door is closed. We don't know, but we do know they certainly attributed this, 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 wall, this closed door to God, to the spirit of Jesus. And then, the most dramatically, we see a vision that appears to Paul of this man across the Aegean Sea in Greece saying, come over here to help us. God doesn't want them to go there. He doesn't want them to go there. He wants them to go there. And this is God communicating through a dream. How does God communicate with us today? How does God communicate with us today? There are some well-known, well-meaning, uh, wonderful Christian teachers who, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, all they talk about is what he doesn't do. But what does the book of Acts show us? 
it shows us the Holy Spirit communicating in a very personal, very direct way to Paul and Silas and Timothy through means we don't know but that are clear to them and even through dreams. Now, people who are concerned about this kind of thing are worried that you'll leave Scripture and just go off into these weird promptings. Scripture needs to always be the, the foundation we come back to. If you receive a dream that tells you to do something sinful, it was not from God because it's against what the Scripture says. God doesn't contradict himself. So that is the way that you evaluate if you feel that God is leading you to do something. And some Christian leaders are really uncomfortable with that language, really uncomfortable with it. But yet we see in the book of Acts, there is no uncomfort with this kind of language. There's none. It's simply there three times in four verses. If you, if you feel God is, is speaking to you and is prompting you, and he's prompting you to do something that is against, contrary to what the scripture says, that is not a prompting from God. That's your common sense check. Everything must conform to how God has revealed himself in the scripture. And God will never lead you to do something that is against what scripture says. But I think we're drawing the circle way too, well, I know we're drawing the circle way too tight because what we see just laid out in front of us is God directly communicating to them three times, even to the point of giving people, giving Paul a, a dream. And Paul and Barnabas and Silas simply accept it at face value. And they don't, they don't write books about what the Holy Spirit can't do. They simply accept it. So that is something to raise your eyebrow, perhaps. Or maybe you have no, maybe it's not something you need to raise your eyebrow at, but there's some people in here, I'm certain, who need to have their eyebrows raised about it, like mine was. There is no, yeah, but, immediate response to something the Holy Spirit does. But for many, for many Christian teachers and pastors today, there is. But Paul and, Paul and Silas didn't see it that way. So that should make us think, are we drawing a circle tighter than Paul would have drawn it? Maybe. Maybe. Now we come to the crux of the chapter, of the woman in purple. He does not, the Holy Spirit does not want them to go into Bithynia, which is over here, way off here. He does not want them to go into Mycenae, which is in Asia. He doesn't want them to go here. He wants them to go to Macedonia, which is over here, which is Greece. And Lydia is waiting there, which is why God wants him to go. We sailed from Troas straight for Samothrace and came to Neapolis the following day. From there, we went to Philippi, a city of Macedonia's first district in a Roman colony. They went down to Troas on the sea, where Luke likely met them, and they island hopped across here to Samothrace, and they went to Neapolis, the port, and then Philippi is right down the road. This is, uh, this is the harbor at Neapolis today, so we're talking about here, after they cross the Aegean Sea. This is the harbor today. This is the large, over thousand mile long Roman road that connected the different cities in that portion of Asia. Paul and Silas literally walked on this road as they were making their way from the port to Philippi and then to cities beyond. So they literally walked on this road. And this is the river, the literal river where Lydia was, 
where they, they met her. We stayed, and they arrived in Philippi, we stayed in that city several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to a riverbank where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. Now, this is really important. Why? It's the Sabbath. He goes to find synagogues on the Sabbath, but there ain't no synagogue here. All he's got in this city, which is far from Jerusalem, in Macedonia, all he's got is a group of faithful women who meet at, outside by the river. That's it. There's no building. There's no nothing. If there were a building, he would have said, it's the Sabbath. What does Paul do on the Sabbath? He goes to the synagogue. There ain't no synagogue. All he's got, probably after making inquiries and asking, is he's been told a group of Jewish, a group of Jews meet down by the river. So he goes down by the river, right, uh, not here, right here. And there they are, they're gathered there for prayer. There are no men, there are only women. And it's a small group of them. And we sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. He was, God diverted him from where he wanted to go, told him to come to Macedonia. What's funny, it, it's a man who's saying, come and help us, and he gets there. And what God has brought him to is a small group of women who appear to be the, the totality of the Jewish community in this city. These small, this small group of women meeting with no building outside by a river. One of these women was Lydia, a Gentile god worshiper from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. She's not Jewish. She's a Gentile who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hasn't heard that the Messiah has come, and she and some other women, she's probably the leader of these women, just gather there at the river and worship God on the Sabbath. When it's winter, they probably go to her house because she has a big house, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm guessing the weather's nice, they're meeting by the river, because why not? One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile god worshiper from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Or your translation may have, the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's message. This, this is, to my eyes, this is the most, the, this is the deepest look behind that curtain that I mentioned that we're going to get this side of the grave as to how, what are the mechanics that go on behind the curtain that result in the player out front becoming a Christian. The Lord has to open your heart so that the gospel can come in so that you will embrace the message. God changes your heart, and as a result, you embrace the message. That is exactly what happened here. There is no sales tactic. There is no amount of persuasion. There's no amount of arguments. There's no amount of YouTube videos you can possibly make or share that will make someone a Christian. And a, someone will never choose to become a Christian or choose to accept Jesus or choose to embrace the gospel and pledge allegiance to Jesus ever unless God first opens her heart to embrace the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the 
there is a veil over our hearts and the veil has to be taken away so that the light of the gospel can beam into that heart. It's the same sort of language. Luke uses it here. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 4. God must open your heart. Now, you could have other questions, and we could talk more about it, but that's as, that's, that's as far as the curtain is basically going to open. Why does one person believe and another person doesn't believe? Because it's not up to you. God, number one, God opens your heart. Number two, as a result, you embrace the message. Open your heart so the gospel can go in and illuminate and change your life and soul and heart. And that's what happens with Lydia. That's what happens with her. Once she and her household were baptized, she urged, now that you've decided that I'm a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. Your translation might have it as a question, if you've decided that I'm a believer. That's possible. It's also it's also very possible that it's not really a question. It's, it's a matter of weird Greek grammar that I won't go into, and it doesn't matter. She's saying, I've become a believer. You should stay with me. Why does she want them to stay with her? To make her house their home base. They have no place. They don't have a, a base of operations. Use my house, she says. Lydia is an extremely important convert, one of the most important converts that Paul makes. She's a woman of she's a woman of extraordinary means. She's a wealthy woman. She's a dealer in purple fabric, which is extremely expensive and will gets her a great deal of money. Paul in the book of Philippians talks about how the only church that has constantly supported him the entire time during his ministry is the church in Philippi. Probably because the the prominent person in the church in Philippi is a wealthy woman of independent means named Lydia who can afford to support Paul so he doesn't have to go and work for a living. He can devote himself full-time to this. She provided a home base for Paul after the Philippian jailers converted. They go and they meet in Lydia's house. Lydia's house is the church. That's where the church is in Acts chapter 16 verse 40. That is where the church is. It doesn't mean the church was there forever, but at least for a long, for a period of time, the church was Lydia's house. Philippian jailer and whoever else was converted, they all met in Lydia's home. Just like in Jerusalem, where did Jesus and the apostles meet? In Mark's mother's house. It's always, it seems to be this pattern of women who provide this base of operations so that the gospel can go forth. And this isn't a sermon on the book of Philippians, but what's really interesting about the book of Philippians is there's so much in there about how Christians need to get along, right? The whole passage about Christ um, not, not looking to himself but serving others, that example Paul gives in Philippians 2, all of that is just a way to illustrate how we're supposed to get along and, and love one another in the Lord and settle disputes. What dispute is going on in Philippi that's so important that makes Paul talk about it in every single chapter of the book? Because that's like the, the, the beating heart of the book is love one another, care for each other, get along, think of others more than you think of yourself. What is the dispute that's going on in the book of Philippians that makes Paul even write this? And then we get to Philippians chapter 4, and as he's wrapping up, he urges the church, 
there are two women among you, Eudia and Syntyche, and he says he asks the church to help them solve their differences. It's these two women who prompted Paul to write the whole, one of the reasons Paul wrote the entire book of Philippians, to encourage the church to get along because these two prominent women, who he calls his co-workers in the gospel along with Clement and other people, have, that, that their dispute is, is, is hurting the church. And these are prominent women. He calls them his co-workers in the gospel, which doesn't mean that they simply provided money. It means they're part of his traveling evangelism team, which means they're likely preaching the gospel. They're his co-workers in the gospel, along with Clement and other people who he doesn't mention. And all of this, where do you think these women came from? How do you think they found the church? Perhaps they're part of the group of women who Paul met at the riverbank who Lydia appeared to be the leader of. So Lydia is an extremely important convert, extremely important. And I believe her influence is felt in many, many intangible ways throughout the rest of the New Testament. What does God show us in these four passages? What God shows us in the Bible is sometimes different than what we actually do on Sunday mornings. But why? So as we revisit those four things, revisit these four things, are we willing to be strategically flexible for the gospel or are we very inflexible? As you think about people you know, people you have relationships with, people who God has put you around, are you willing to be strategically flexible on certain things so you will have an opportunity to speak the gospel to friends, families, coworkers, to whoever? Or are you just very rigid, and inflexible. Number two, do we really believe that God communicates with us by the Spirit? Do we really believe that? Or when we think about the Holy Spirit, do we, do we immediately say, yeah, but I believe in the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, he doesn't do that, he doesn't do that, he doesn't do that, and he doesn't do that. Is that there are some Christian teachers, that's basically the way they talk about the Holy Spirit. There are Christian teachers who put on entire conferences that are dedicated to nothing but that. But yet, despite how good and wonderful many of those teachers are, is that what we see in Acts chapter 16? Is that what we see? Yeah, but, or do we see the Holy Spirit directly communicating with Christians who accept it without any yeah, buts whatsoever? Do we really believe, do we really believe God has to open hearts and our job is just to give the message? Do we really believe that? Or is that just something that exists on paper? So back when they used to do Christmas parades here in this town, perhaps this year is the year, uh, when we participate in the Christmas parade and we give away 400 gospel tracts to people lining the thing and then no one shows up that Sunday or the next Sunday, do we sit around and say, it was a failure, was it? I thought our job was just to give the message. And we let God open hearts. Who knows whether he opened hearts? Maybe he opened hearts and they went to the church next door to them, which isn't this church. How do we know? Do we really believe that? Or are we going to mope around and be depressed because we don't have 500 people here on Sunday morning? Are we being, is our church being faithful to give the message? And if so, then that's faithfulness. Caitlin just did another evangelism video that's being advertised on social media right now that 1,500 people have looked at. I don't see anyone come bursting in the doors, running down here to pray for forgiveness down here at the, at the platform. 
Does that mean it's a failure? So do we really believe that or not? Do we really believe that God is the one who opened hearts and our job is to give the message? Last one, do we really believe that women are equal partners in God's family? Do we really believe that? There are some churches where it's extraordinarily controversial for a woman to lead singing. You might have been in one of those churches. Extraordinarily controversial. Scandalous even that a woman would lead singing. Scandalous that a woman would pray publicly in a gathering of the church. Some churches that would be unheard of. And you might not have ever realized it. Have you ever been to it? Some of you may have been to a church where you've never seen a woman lead worship before. You might not have thought of it, but how many of you is that the case? How many of you have never seen a woman distribute elements of the Lord's Supper? How many of you have never heard a woman pray up here at the platform in any church you've been at? You might not have ever thought about it, but as you think about it, how many of you say you're right? I've never seen that. I've never seen a woman lead singing. I've never seen a woman distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper. I've never seen a woman pray publicly. But yet, Lydia doesn't say what her role was. Lydia was the the key figure in the Philippian church. She let them use her house as her home base. And two women who come from that same group of people, Paul calls his co-workers in the gospel. His co-workers in the gospel. That has to mean, what's it mean? What's it mean to be a co-worker in the gospel? If it, if, it were, if it were a man, you'd say, well, of course, he goes around and preaches the gospel with Paul. Well, it's probably what these ladies did too. So that's not the, that's not the last word on this issue. All I'm saying is, we, if you just look at what the passage shows us, it shows us some things that probably make most of us raise our eyebrow at one or more of them. So what does God want us to do with these passages? Is what they did then the way we do things now? And if not, why not? Why not? One thing I, th- I believe what we can do this week is to pray this week and ask God, say, God, give me and give this church wisdom on how to better reflect your heart and not well-meaning traditions. There's a lot of well-meaning traditions enforced or or propagated by very well-meaning lovely teachers but sometimes our traditions are not what we see in the scripture so we need to be constantly going what we do scripture and always trying to make what we do look more like scripture and it's never going to be done that's why we're going to do the the meals for uh, for communion sundays after church because in first corinthians 11 we see meals happening with the lord's supper so why don't we do that we're trying we should be trying to make what we do look like it was back then as much as we can within reason within the limits of sanity but are we willing to do that are we willing to think about that you're not going to find a passage in the book of acts that is just sits down and instructs you about every question you do see you you do see see it shown to you though and what conclusions can you draw from what we see in this passage there's a whole lot to chew on here but what i think it does show us is it gives us some things to think about are we willing to be strategically flexible for the gospel? Are we, do we really believe that God communicates to us by his spirit? Or do we like to put up fences that don't exist? Do we really believe that God opens hearts and he's responsible for salvation and our job is just to give the message? Do we really believe that women are equal partners in God's family? Or do we like to put up barriers there too? 
That's what God wants us to think about as we think about this passage. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning, this afternoon, in your son's name. We pray for Haley. We pray for Annette, for wisdom, for our church to be able to help them. We pray that uh, we can band together and harness our resources and our abilities to help them through this time. Help us to examine our traditions. Help us to value things we've inherited from people we love and know and trust. And then help us to think about those traditions in the light of Scripture. And help us always want to conform what we do to what your word says and to what it shows us. Give us the wisdom to know how to do that well without disruption and with wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.